Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Not many musicians cite design or architecture as their inspiration. But sitting in a beautifully designed German airport in 1978, Brian Eno was inspired to create atmospheric music to complement the space. His landmark album, Music for Airports, followed. And with it, Eno created ambient music, an entirely new genre that still thrives today. Brian Eno's 50-year career is teeming with innovation. He started out playing synths in the early 70s as a member of the UK glam rock band Roxy Music, went on to record a series of solo albums, and eventually produced career-defining albums for a host of bands, including U2, Devo, and Coldplay. His latest project is a radio station through Sonos Radio HD. He'll be streaming 300 unreleased songs from his decades in music, including some that he's still making today. The station is called The Lighthouse. And on today's episode, Rick Rubin talks to Brian Eno a bit about that station, and also about his love for the musical space that exists between humans and machines. Eno also recalls predicting the birth of hip-hop in the back of a cab with David Byrne, and explains why listening to Beyonce playing through a wall is strangely satisfying. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin with Brian Eno. I'm going to start in a funny place because just now before we start, I was thinking about a lot of things. And the last thought that came up before I made notes this morning was to ask what was the last bit of technology to come along that has influenced the way you work? There have been a few. I've been working quite a lot with my friend Peter Chilvers, who's a musician and a coder. And we've been working on um, ways of manipulating MIDI automatically. And effectively what we're doing is taking a MIDI signal and subjecting it to various probabilistic mutations. So, for instance, you have a stream of information going into the MIDI and you say, leave out 13% of that. So if you have a drum part, it sounds like the drummer is dropping a beat every so often. Or we can say things like every one in 20 beats, double it or move it by a quarter beat. So we can take parts that are fairly fixed, 
or what, which are loops, in fact, and we can suddenly bring them to life in some very, very interesting and uncanny ways. It doesn't really sound like what humans would do, but it doesn't sound like what machines do either. So it's an interesting new zone, I think. I, I've always liked those zones between the human and the mechanical. This is why I love all the voice treatments that are going on now so much, because that's always what I wanted to hear. The one, the one thing that used to be sacred you could never touch was the voice. And I always thought, why not? You know, it's just another piece of electronic material like anything else. We can do what we like with it. Do you ever feel like going the other way? Do you ever um, start with something that's synthetic or programmed and decide to recreate it with traditional instruments? Have you ever done that? I've done that, and it hasn't always been very successful. In fact, it's actually rather rarely been successful for me. And I think it's because what I enjoy about the use of the electronics and the computers is that they do things that humans can't do. And I, I really like that area just between what we can do and what machines can do. There's this sort of new area that is appearing. I mean, people are noticing it more and more, particularly with vocals. Suddenly there are these ways of singing that you've never heard before. And what's very interesting, of course, is that a new generation of people are learning to sing like that. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those wonderful things on YouTube of where young people have clearly heard a Rihanna record or something like that and thought, oh, that's great. I'm going to sing like that. And they don't actually realize that it's done with an auto-tune. Yes. That it was not possible to sing like that until somebody did it with a machine and then somebody else thought, well, it's possible, so I'll do it. In the case of the first example where you're removing bits of MIDI information, would you say that the, the random aspect of the process is always at work for you? I like things when there's a layer of surprise, I suppose. And it's not because I have this John Cageian faith in randomness. For him, it was a sort of religious feeling that um, randomness tied you into the synchronicity of the world, that somehow by using randomness, you allowed the state of things to affect your work. It's a nice idea and I like it and I respect it in his work. For me, it's a way of searching a musical space that I wouldn't do using just my taste. I mean, one's taste tends to propel you into the same areas over and over again. The interesting thing about randomness is that sometimes you're taken somewhere that you didn't expect to go. And sometimes that turns out to be a really interesting new place. So randomness for me is really just a tool, just a way of taking me somewhere different. So it's not random for the sake of random, but through the random process, you find something new that you're looking for that you didn't know you were looking for, essentially. That's exactly right. Yes, you, something happens and you kind of recognize it. You think, yes. That makes sense. The reason I think this is interesting is because I think what makes any work of art interesting is, or gripping or effective, is the feeling that somebody was living. Somebody was living it. Somebody was alert and alive and passionate in some way. And the way you get into that state is by being in unfamiliar territory, I think. You're, you're most alive when you're not quite sure what, what is going on, when you're, you're slightly flying by the seat of your pants and you have to negotiate it somehow. That's, that's why we love improvisation so much because people are deliberately putting themselves at risk in a way, soaring out into the unknown and uh, somehow dealing with it. And that process of hearing someone dealing with it is the difference between life and death in a piece of work, I think. So I suppose all, all of the strategies and techniques that I use, and there are quite a lot of them besides randomness, are really ways of trying to find myself in a new place because I get excited when I'm in a new place. I, I like being in unfamiliar surroundings. I always used to say that artists are either cowboys or farmers, really. 
and they're both both ways of being an artist are fine. You know, the farmer wants to find a piece of territory and fully explore it and exploit it. You know, you could say um, the last 20 years of Mondrian was like that, when Mondrian finally settled on the style that we all know him for. He just carried on doing it. But the other kind of artist is the one who just wants to find somewhere new. He just wants to find the, ne the next frontier, the next piece of territory. And that's what he gets turned on by. So I, I think I'm more in the second category, though people listening to my work would say, but it all sounds exactly the same, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have that same approach in life beyond art? Are you an explorer? Have you lived all over the world? Do you continue to put yourself in new situations as a human being as opposed to an artist? I have such an amazing amount of inertia, you wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't leave my studio if I had the choice, probably. No, it's not that bad. But the only reason I ever go anywhere, really, is because I don't have a choice. For instance, um, I had to go to New York in 1978 to <laughs> do something for a week. And it was a nice, lovely weather when I arrived. It was this time of year. Somebody said, well, uh, I've got a sublet if you want to stay. And I ended up spending five years there just because it was a nice day when I arrived. Yes. <laughs> so I didn't have any intention of living in New York. And then I left New York because I, I had to go to Tokyo to do something. And I was away in Tokyo and somebody robbed my studio and took everything. Actually, everything was gone. And somebody rang me up and said, your whole studio's disappeared. And I suddenly had this feeling of relief. I thought, oh, I don't have to go back to New York then. So then I, I moved to Toronto after that for a little while. But I don't really move very much unless I have to for some reason, or, or unless I don't plan things very well. I'm pretty happy wherever I am, actually. I think we have that in common. And <laughs> uh, it's funny, I'm wondering if the urge to adventure creatively is the balance for the fact that we live such hermetic lives. I think that's a very good theory, yes. I, I know that whatever I'm doing in my work always seems to be balancing what is happening in the rest of my life. For instance, when I lived in New York, I lived on a very, very, very noisy corner. It was um, on the corner of Broome and Broadway. So Broadway, very busy street, and then Broome was the cross street where all the big trucks used to go on their way to the tunnel. I lived at the top of the building, but it used to kind of rock with this sound. And it was whilst I lived there that I made the quietest music I've ever made. And I'm sure what I was trying to do was to make the place in the music that I needed to be able to get to sometimes as a relief from living in New York. And then, then I moved back to England about two years later, three years later, and I moved to the countryside, to the town that I grew up in. Very quiet, small country town. And then I made the loudest music I'd ever made in my life. Again, I think I needed a bit of city. I needed, you know, some grit, some noise. So, so yes, I think, um, I think that's kind of what artists do. They're always making worlds and sometimes worlds that they would just like to visit and look at, sometimes worlds they would like to spend time in. Earlier you said we're born with a particular taste. Do you feel like your current taste is the taste you were born with and or <laughs> has it evolved and changed over the, over the course of your life? That's a very good question. I remember when I first started painting, because painting was the first artistic thing I did. I, I never learned to play an instrument, so... I was a painter as a kid, and I remember I loved combinations of red and blue that produced the mauve violet range of the spectrum. And I did loads of paintings just exploring that sort of what I felt was a melancholy, deep area of colour. And certainly the melancholy of it was a big part of what attracted me. 
And I don't think that's ever gone. I still have that feeling for, it's sort of a nostalgia for other futures that could have happened but didn't, if you see what I mean. Yeah. How, how old were you at this time that you were painting? Oh, I started when I was about nine or 10. But I got into the purple area when I was about 13 or 14. I was very, very impressed by Mondrian from early on. I used him as an example earlier, but I loved the simplicity of his pictures because I kept thinking, how can something that is so simple, objectively, you know, how can that have such an effect on me? It was the closest thing to magic that I had ever seen. And at the same time, I was, I loved doo-wop music. Now you're probably a, probably a bit too young for doo-wop, aren't you? But no, I'm a fan of doo-wop. I am too young for it. But I, but there was a growing up in New York. There was a radio show on the oldie station on Sundays that played two or three hours of doo-wop every weekend. Don K. Reed and I listened to it religiously, and uh, I absolutely love doo-wop. Yeah, well, this that had the same sort of effect on me because doo-wop is a very simple music in in many senses, you know, it's mainly about voices, not not about lots of instruments and lots of playing. And in fact, the closer it was to a cappella, the more I liked it. And I just loved the fact that four voices could produce such a range of colors and feelings. That's That seemed to me like on a par with Mondrian, you know, how, and I was always very drawn to this idea of doing as much as possible with as little as possible. I was never impressed by the kind of music that used, you know, complicated time signatures and amazingly brilliant playing and so on. It's sort of impressive, but for me, there was not the same magic in that. You could see the trick being done, you know. So that part of my taste hasn't changed. I, I really am always drawn to things that look like anybody could do them, yeah. where you think, I could have made that. But I fucking didn't. <laughs> Why didn't I? <laughs> part I, have, I don't know if you have this feeling, but part of the feeling of, one of the feelings I always have that tells me something is great is kind of anger <laughs> that, I, that I didn't do it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have that, but I, but I understand it. <laughs> I do. I, I'm so thankful when there's something that I like that I didn't make because mm. it's so exciting. It's like, wow, it, often I make things more out of the need for them to exist. Yes, that's exactly right. I want this music to exist. Yeah. The only reason I, I make music, the reason I got into this line of work was because I was experiencing hip hop music. And the records that were being made didn't reflect what it actually was. Yes. So my, my earliest work was really just documenting something that I was already a fan of and did, it just didn't exist in the world. So I didn't really have a choice. Mm -hmm. So when I do hear something that I like, I get, I get very excited because uh, I'm always looking for something that feels like a new way in. Yes. What you said there is, something that I've often thought that the things that influence me most in terms of actually making things are the things that I hear that don't quite succeed. Mm -hmm. Where I listen to them, and I think that's a brilliant idea. And do you know what? If they had done this and that and this other thing and left that bit out, that would be even better. So quite often when I'm thinking like that about something, I realize that I'm, I'm inventing something new, which isn't that thing, but isn't something that I really had thought about before either. So it's, it's quite often hearing something just missing the mark <laughs> that makes me think that could be better. That's been an important thread for me. Do you find that if you look back, the most interesting things have hit you that way? Like when you first hear something or see something, you you don't know whether you like it or not, or maybe it makes you laugh or it seems ridiculous or... Uh, yes. But then it, you come around to loving it or maybe loving it the most. Yes, 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 absolutely. I, I really admired The Who. I loved the, my generation and things like that. And then they, they released a song called Happy Jack. I thought, 
they shouldn't release lightweight material like this. They are a serious revolutionary radical band. What are they doing releasing this kind of material? And I even wrote to Pete Townsend saying, <laughs> saying you shouldn't be releasing stuff like this. <laughs> You're much too important or something to that effect. And it was about three or four months later that I suddenly got it, that this was a kind of pop art. So, so that's one example of something where I, I had a real change of mind. And I've had more of those in, in painting than in music. In music, I kind of very often have a pretty good feeling of what is about to happen. I don't mean that I could make it, but I'm not incredibly surprised by it. For instance, I remember saying to David Byrne, we were in a car in, in Los Angeles in 1980, and I said, I think there is going to be a kind of music where people kind of shout poetry over beats. And indeed there was. <laughs> yes. It wasn't entirely an unscripted idea. I, I'd heard something on NPR. It was a, a poet, a black poet from somewhere in America, reading this poem called um, Cadillac. I spent years trying to find this thing. I never found it. I wrote to NPR and I phoned them up and everything. It was called Pink Cadillac. And he just did this amazing, very rhythmic poem about how he wanted a pink Cadillac and how cool it was and how it turned rounded the corner and things like that. And I thought, this is a new kind of music. I mean, I, I, had, I knew about the last poets. They, they were sort of in the back of my mind as well. But I just suddenly had this vision of a popular music, not a music that would only be on NPR, but a popular music that people would want to hear that had heavy beats and speech, not songs. Was the Pink Cadillac uh, piece that you heard, did it have a beat or was it a cappella? I think it was a cappella or, or just had a very, I can't remember it very well now. In fact, I only heard it that once. <laughs> yeah. It just stuck in my mind and I can still remember the cadence of some of it. And there, there may have just been a... You got that pink Cadillac. That kind of feeling to it, you know. And I thought, yeah, that is definitely new. We'll be right back after a quick break with more from Brian Eno. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans have this amazing new tool at their disposal. 
It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with more from Rick Rubin and Brian Eno. Can you remember any other um, forms of music that either do or don't yet exist that you, you've imagined? Yes. There's one that has just come into existence, I think. And it's something that I have been sort of playing around with. Do you know this, um, this listening practice? I don't really know what to call it exactly. I, I could call it music, but I'm not sure it is the right word for it. It's called ASMR. Mm-hmm. This is where people are listening very close up to noises like this. And there's lots of smacking lips and that kind of thing. And basically people tell quite long stories, but they're hardly stories. It's about that sound. And they often use stereo microphones so they can move their voices from one, from one of your ears to the other and back and forth. It's very, very interesting because these are quite long pieces. And just go on YouTube and have a look. They've got millions and millions of listeners. So there's a lot of people doing this. So I heard these, first of all, I think three or four years ago, I heard the first ones and thought, this is really interesting. This is like having somebody wandering around inside your head, whispering to you. And I thought... This is kind of an, it's like ambient music, actually. There's a sort of diminution of content in favor of sound. So it's a kind of live, of the moment sound experience that doesn't really have a past or a future. You know, it's not what philosophers call teleological. It doesn't, doesn't go somewhere. It doesn't have a goal. It, yeah. it's, it's a steady state experience. And this, of course, is what I always wanted ambient music to be, like a, like a picture on the wall. You don't expect it to change all the time. What changes is you, the listener. The art stays relatively still. So I heard this ASMR stuff and thought, this is a kind of ambient music. And I thought, um, what about um, making music that is vocal music? But like that, I had never really thought about ambient music being vocal before then. In fact, it was for me specifically not vocal. It was a sort of deliberately personality-free music. And putting a voice in there to me was to say, to draw all the attention to the, to the voice and say, oh, here's somebody with something to tell you. And I really didn't want that. But then when I heard this ASMR, I thought, this person clearly has nothing to tell me at all. 
they're talking about how they comb their hair and doing it for, for 25 minutes. Clearly, the message is not about combing hair. The message is about being inside a voice for a decent length of time. So I started to think, what, what would you do to existing music to make it occupy that same space? And then I started experimenting with my favorite tool of all in the studio, which is the low-pass filter, just taking off all the high-frequency of things has an amazing psychological effect to me. It creates scale, distance, warmth, and a weird sort of intimacy, which is quite strange, I think, because you know you're missing a lot of detail. Your brain very actively engages with those kinds of sounds. I, that's my theory about why it's interesting anyway. So, so I started thinking... Perhaps there could be a kind of music like that where we take existing songs, you know, a Rihanna record, or and we just put it through a low-pass filter, but really a really radical low-pass filter. So nothing above, say, 250 hertz is, is audible. If you listen to a Beyoncé record through a wall, it's not exhausting. It's warm. So... About a week ago, somebody said to me, oh, have you heard this new ASMR music thing? <laughs> and described exactly that same experiment. So it's like you're listening to records that are being played in another room. So you just have that sort of comforting... <laughs> you can't really figure out what it is, but it's sociable somehow it's friendly it's like having other people around it's like a daydream almost uh, yes 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 that's a good way of saying it yeah sounds fantastic on the other side of that are lyrics ever important to you they're very rarely the thing i'm most listening to in music mm -hmm. i think the the base requirement for me in lyrics is that they don't make the music stupid, which turns out to be quite a high bar in many yeah. cases. Now, people say doo-wop lyrics are stupid, but I don't think they are at all. They serve the music absolutely. Doo-wop lyrics are the, the way of making a voice become musical. What is always awkward to me is when somebody feels they have something to say and it's important and you get these clumsy pieces of scanning and the rhymes don't sound stupid and so on. I, I can't bear that. I'd rather just leave out the voice completely than have that. But I mean, there are lyricists who I absolutely adore. Like I always say Joni Mitchell, who's for me, one of the greatest songwriters of all time. And her lyrics are so clever and intricate and always worth returning to that I, I'm always hearing new things in in her singing and new interpretations of what she's saying and there are a few people like that very very few <laughs> whose work I actually do really want to know the lyrics of where do you think the line is between sounds and music it's where that line is is actually one of the things I've thought about most in thinking about music I had an accident years and years ago where I was confined to bed for a while. And one afternoon, a rainy afternoon, a friend of mine came over and I said, as she left, I said, Do you, can you just put a record on for me? This is, I had a record player, but it wasn't close to the bed. So she put this um, record on. It was a record of Welsh harp music. And she just put the needle on as she left. And it was actually very quiet, but I couldn't get up to change the volume. And the rain was beating down outside. And I suddenly had this realization that I loved the fact that the music seemed to be arising out of the rain. It wasn't on top of the rain. Sometimes it was submerged by the rain, but these notes, the loudest notes were appearing out of the rain. And I thought, how lovely to co-opt the surroundings to become part of the music. So... This was in 1970, 
four, I think, or five. So I started thinking, what about if you made a kind of music that didn't have a hard edge to it, that didn't have a hard boundary, that wasn't done so that you knew that that was a musical sound and that everything else was just random everyday noise. I thought, what about softening the edges of the music so that you include some things that, that could be noise outside of the music, that could be the street or the rain or the wind or something like that. So I started building in this sort of where ambient music started coming from, was this idea of making music that had a soft edge that blended into the rest of the world. So this idea of saying, let's make the edge soft so that the music can invite in more of the rest of the world. It draws it in and that becomes part of the composition as well. And I think this was at the time I was starting to think about messiness as well, that I didn't want the work to be sort of in a little capsule, tidily closed off from the rest of the world. I wanted it to feel like it was somehow connected to it, that it bled into the rest of the world. What did you look like at the time, at that point in time? How were you dressing? I think I still had long hair. I was still wearing makeup, I think, then. Yeah, mid-70s I, I was, yes. And I wore a lot of um, unusual clothes. <laughs> I'm, I'm just wondering, like, how the, the, just the juxtapositions, you know, it's like the, the person who's dressed like that making the music that you don't look at or don't pay attention to. It's just, I know. It, it's really interesting. No, really you're absolutely right. It's, it's sort of inconsistent. And it became clearer to me that they were inconsistent, that my physical appearance was saying, look at me. But my musical output was saying, it's nothing. It's just a tint. It's just an atmosphere. <laughs> you know, No big deal. Carry on with your life. May and maybe that was, again, the lo looking for the balance. Yes, yes. yes you know, the art right. was looking for the balance. And Yep, I never thought of that. That's, that's very, very likely true. From about the late 70s on, I started to not want to be a pop star. And really, that was, that was because I thought it was misleading people. You know, if, if the whole thing is about me, that's actually not a very interesting subject, to be honest. I'm not a boring person or anything like that. But I didn't think that my personality was the thing that I had to offer the world. <laughs> yeah, they were, they, you saw larger issues. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, what is the edge what is the yes. edge of art? Um, yes. that, that was the issue that really interested me, I think. What do we call art and why, where do we draw the boundary? And what do, we, what do we mean by art anyway? You know, for me, the most interesting question for a long, long time has been, why do we want to make art at all? And why do we want to listen to it? I mean, it's an incredibly deep question. Why do we like music? <laughs> Why? You know, if you think about it, what is music? It's a kind of arrangement of noises. But, you know, we have incredibly strong feelings about them. If you said to a Martian who just landed on Earth, you played them four string quartets, you know, there's Shostakovich, there's a Brahms, there's whatever else, and then there's one done by a computer and there's one played by a group of talentless 14-year-olds who've just got those instruments. And you said... What's the difference between those? They'd probably say, well, there's no difference. They all sound exactly the same. But we are hearing very, very, very fine distinctions between these things. We obviously care about and value these experiences in quite intense ways. And since I was about 17, I've been thinking about this question of what are we doing it for? What, what are we hearing? Why does it matter? We clearly can live without music. It's not like food. We can't live without food and we can't live without clothes and we can't live without communicating with other human beings. And there are all sorts of things we have to do. Music isn't one of them. Painting isn't one of them. Sculpture, none of those things that we call arts are things that we have to do. So why are we doing them? And why is it so universal? 
we don't know of a culture that doesn't have music. Well, then, then I'm not sure that we don't have to do it. If that's well, the yes. case, it, in, it, y- yes, of course. You're I mean, right. it's, it's not it's not functional in terms of um, survival. It doesn't seem we have never tried the experiment. Yeah, to take it away, but yeah. it it seems to have some ability to allow us to feel or understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. The music isn't what's important. It's the reaction that's important. Yes, exactly. It's what is happening to us. Yeah. I imagine it when we tap into that in art, it makes us also feel less alone. Not even that someone made it, but there's something out there that resonates with me, even if it's the paint. Yes. I'm not this this thing <laughs> that doesn't understand itself. Here's something that is re- being reflected back that resonates with me. I feel a connection. So it's maybe it's like love, might be like love. Now, I think this is such an important point that the thing that binds communities together is, is shared culture. And it's for exactly that reason, I think. It's the knowledge that there are a group of other people who have these same feelings. You might not even be able to articulate them, but, you know, I can remember this so, so strongly from when I was young that you defined yourself almost by the set of feelings that you responded to. So, for instance, (laughs) I remember there was a time when you were either a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan, and they were fundamentally different. They talked about a different kind of person. You know, doesn't matter that in the end they all ended up millionaires and doesn't matter. It's not important. What was important was that they presented these two different pictures of the kinds of feelings that were appropriate to have about the world. And crossing over from one to the other was a a big decision. (laughs) I can remember people having real sort of identity crises about they were finding, starting to find the Stones more exciting than the Beatles. And in fact, they were starting to find the Beatles a bit sort of wimpy. Or vice versa, actually, as well. It happened both ways. So I think you're right that you you tap into a sort of community of feelings and the sense that there are other people who value the same feelings that I value. That's sort of what it's about, really. It's about saying, these feelings have value for me. And there's a lot of others that don't. Yeah, there's, a, there's also a great feeling in finding a new piece of art and sharing it with someone and enjoying it together is different than enjoying it yourself. There's a real sense of community in enjoying something that, you know, we enjoy this, but maybe, maybe many people don't and that's fine. Yes. It's a, it's a great feeling of connection. And maybe that's, maybe that's the greatest feeling of connection is the, the feeling of the, these shared responses to stimuli (laughs) yes and incidentally i think that's the that's the power of religion as well the the power of religion is not the connection with god but the connection with the rest of the congregation i think the connection with all of the people who also believe in that particular story i'm i'm not really religious myself but i really respond to that idea. You know, I, I got into gospel music very young. In fact, when I came to America, I was by then a big gospel fan. And what surprised me was that all my hip friends thought it was quite embarrassing. <laughs> they, they found it a little bit quaint or something that I liked gospel music. To me, it was just like doo-wop had been. It was this amazing, exotic, foreign music. And it really came straight through to me. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more from Brian Eno. Snag a job is where America goes to hire 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Brian Eno. I've heard the story before of the moment of recognition or the, the need for what became ambient music based on the Cologne Airport, yes. sitting in the Cologne Airport. How might it have been different if it would have happened in a natural space as opposed to a man-made space? Well, the question really is, would it have even occurred to me if if I was in a natural space, I, I'm not sure that it would have done. It was because I was in a in an incredibly carefully manufactured space, beautiful airport, 
where the architects had really looked at every detail and the light was beautiful and the lines of the place were beautiful. And somebody in the cafe had put on a cassette of German disco music, which was ringing through the airport. I mean, I wasn't postmodern enough at the time to accept that. I just thought, <laughs> that's not right. That part hasn't been thought about. Everything else has been thought about, but nobody's thought about that. Now, it was a beautiful day and the airport was nearly empty and I was sitting there bathed in light. And it was one of those cases like we were talking about earlier where you think, I wish there was another kind of music for this situation. And I started thinking, so what would that be like? You know, it's an airport, so you, you can't be too loud. Obviously, people have to hear announcements. It has to be interruptible for the same reason. It shouldn't dominate the vocal register because people need to communicate. So I just was sort of thinking this out and quite soon I thought, right, I think I know what I could, I could make that music. I know how I could do that. And that's how that first ambient record came about. I mean, it wasn't unprecedented. I had been working on music a little bit like that before, but I suddenly realized what its role in life could be, if you like what the place of this music could be. I knew it wasn't dance music. <laughs> I knew it wasn't radio music. It was functional, but I hadn't yet discovered the function. It was then that I thought, I know what this music could be for. Might there be other forms of ambient music for different use cases? Yes. I did a record called um, Narrowly. The subtitle was Music for Thinking, that really came out of a response, well, first of all, hearing from a lot of particularly artists and graphic designers that they liked having my music playing when they were working. They didn't want conventional records, which kept stopping and starting and the mood changing and they were, there was lyrics and they were kind of annoying. They didn't want classical music because it sort of felt too old. They liked this music that had this sort of directionless, atmospheric quality. So I thought, oh, good. So it's working. It's, it's working functionally. And so I thought, so what about when you want to sit and concentrate on something? You want to have something that kind of calms the world down a little bit around you, that softens, as Eric Satie said, softens the clink of fork against dinner plate or something like that. I forget the quote exactly. But you want something that is is sort of a slight barrier to the noises of the world. And it becomes a barrier by sucking them into itself. And so then I came up with this piece called Narrowly, which is an hour long piece, um, which at that time was the longest I could make it. And I started thinking then about the idea of music that doesn't have a beginning or end that just is is theoretically infinite well that didn't become possible until the 90s when i started working with computers and and it was possible to make the kinds of programs i make now where where the music effectively never repeats and my my ambition always then was to try to make an experience a little bit like sitting by a river. So you're sitting by the river. It's always the same river, but as you know, <laughs> it's never the same river twice. So every time you look up at the river, it's doing something a little bit different. Now, it's not like watching a film where suddenly the river turns blood red or gets much bigger or something like that. I didn't want drama. I just wanted something like nature. Subtle, subtle variations. <laughs> subtle variations, yes, and variations that stay within a kind of range of possibilities and explore that range rather randomly. I just wanted the thing to be what Harold Budd used to call eternally pretty. That was his way of saying it. <laughs> Dear Harold, he died about two months ago from COVID. Very sad. So... I dedicate this thought to Harold. So yes, so when, when Harold and I met, we were both pretty much on this groove of thinking, what about making music that 
isn't designed to upset anybody. <laughs> now, of course, that sounds pretty uncontroversial now, but in the mid to late 70s, that was considered to be the biggest sellout of all time. You know, music was supposed to shake the world and create revolutions and upset your parents and all sorts of things like that. And we thought, what about making music that is just really comfortable? Comfortable was probably the most controversial word you could use then. <laughs> what about music that makes you feel warm and friendly and open and able to surrender? When I, when I realized that surrender was really the thing that I was interested in for that kind of music, obviously I don't only make that kind of music, but for that, I wanted to make something that would make you think, I can let something happen to me. I don't have to defend against everything. I can get out of that posture of self-defense. If you think of the things that where we achieve transcendence, if you like, or ecstasy, it's sex, drugs, art, and religion. Those are all the places where we say, I'm going to let go and just let this thing happen to me. I'm not going to control it. I'm going to be taken somewhere. Now, it's interesting to me that although we are constantly trying to control, our biggest thrills come from letting go of control. And so what becomes obvious that is that it's the it's the combination of those two that we should really be specializing in we should and we should not forget the surrender part we should not think that surrendering is passivity or cowardice or incompetence we should say it's one of the ways we deal with the world so i think Art is the place where we go to have this feeling again, to remember that feeling of going with the flow, of letting something happen to us. In real life, in the rest of life, I should say, we're still able to do that. We can remember that feeling. For me, there's certain, I can see a film that has a, an energy in it that could affect me for months. Yes. And um, I, I'm, I'm, very open to the energies contained in things. So I'm mm -hmm. protective of what I watch for that reason. I don't want to have a bad time a lot of the time. I don't, I don't choose that. I just want to ask how sensitive you are in that respect. I, I'm, yes, I think I'm very sensitive in that respect. And to the extent that certain experiences, I don't want to have them very often because I don't want them to lose their power. Yeah. So just about the, single album that probably influenced me more than almost any other was the third Valve Underground album. That was a really, really important record in my life because so many things I had been wondering if they were possible suddenly appeared on that album. And also a lot of things I hadn't even conceived of. For that reason, I've never owned the album. Um, I haven't even listened to it that many times because I really wanted it to retain that power. I didn't want it to become commonplace. Yes. Another piece like that is the Steve Reich piece, It's Gonna Rain, what, that tape piece from, I think, 1964. That absolutely devastated me the first time I heard it. I th understood so many things about music that I had not even dreamed of before that piece. And I still regard it as a key moment in my life. And I think I've probably listened to it four times. It turned a switch and the switch stayed turned. Yes. I didn't have to keep turning it again. You know, It stayed turned. In your evolution up to ambient music, it's fascinating to me that you could ever do anything different than that. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it almost feels like that's the end of the line in terms of the minimalist approach, you you got there. So it's interesting that you, you do other things, like you didn't do the Mondrian staying in the same language only. Yes, I, perhaps if I had carried on living in New York, I would have done. Maybe. Because I would have always wanted more of that kind of music. But 
I've just had the very interesting experience of, do you know about this Sonos project that I'm doing? I, I don't really. Tell me. Okay, well, Sonos asked me to curate a channel for them, basically. It's like my own radio station. And I like the idea of that. But I thought what I'd really like to do is to curate a station that plays only my music because I've got so much unreleased stuff. You know, I, I work in the studio every day pretty much and some of it is just experiments where I try something out just to see what it would do if you tried to make a piece of music like that. <laughs> and I have thousands of thousands of recordings like that. I just mix everything. You know, when I finish the day, I mix whatever I've done that day. Sometimes it can be five or six different pieces even. So I have this vast library of stuff. Some of it is really quite interesting. And I thought, how nice would it be to have a radio channel where you just switch it on and out come pieces of music that you've never heard before, will probably never hear again. And they're all quite different from one another. There's quite a range of stuff. Some of it is very ambient. Some of it is very hard beat stuff. Some of it's really electronic. Some of it is touchingly human, <laughs> which is how you describe something that is rather amateurish. <laughs> so for the first time in my life, I thought, well, I'll just start listening through to those things. And so they play on random shuffle out of my computer. And I have to say, I so like the collisions, the strange combinations of things. You know, something from 1991 next to something I did last year, next to yeah. something from 2005. And no, no rationale to the, to the choices that they're randomly selected. And although some of the music is pretty challenging, a lot of it is quite easy to listen to. And as I would say to people, you'll probably only hear it once. So if you don't like it, just wait. Something else will come along soon. Yeah. I have one last question to ask just because I'm really curious. What's your relationship to spirituality? Well, as you can tell from, from the way I talk too much, <laughs> I, I, I think about this kind of thing quite a lot. What I always want to do is to cut away as much of the shit as possible and see what's left. So I don't want to be a believer. I want to be somebody who, as far as possible, understands and knows things. Believing things leaves me a little bit unsatisfied. If I find myself believing something, I want to test the belief. I want to say, how do I find out how valid this is, how true this is? Now, in real belief, in proper faith, you're not supposed to do that. Faith is supposed to be the, by definition, the acceptance of something that you cannot find evidence for. If you can find evidence for it, it's not faith anymore. It's, it's called knowledge then. <laughs> so this is a long way round of saying that I'm not anti-spiritual. I'm not anti-religion, actually. In fact, I can see how religion really cements some communities together and really helps people in their lives. But I'm not by nature a believer. So it's difficult for me to use that kind of cement. My cement has to come from trying to understand things and to see how they work and to share those ideas with other people. Yeah. So I think one of the, one of the other things that surrendering prepares you for is the experience of uncertainty, the experience of not knowing the answer, but still having to do something, you know. The fact that you don't know the answer can't cripple you. And of course, a lot of people are crippled by not knowing the answer. And so they just choose an inappropriate answer, just for the want of an answer. Yes. So you just have to accept that you don't know the answers and you will make mistakes and you will need to change your values and your tools. And some of them might last you a lifetime, but you're lucky if that happens. 
I haven't got any that lasted me a lifetime. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Amazing. A pleasure speaking with you. Yes, you too. I must say I really enjoyed that. Thanks to Brian Eno for sharing his artistic philosophy with us. To hear our favorite Brian Eno tracks, head to brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.